following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. So over the last few weeks, we've been uh, going verse by verse through this Sermon on the Mount, this series we're calling The Practicing the Ways of Jesus. And we've kind of transitioned now from this first section that we call the Beatitudes to a section that you can now refer to, and I'm going to call it an insightful look at the law of God. And I believe that insightful may even be an understatement to what Jesus is doing right here, because Jesus was there when the law was given. And as God, who could better know the law of God than Jesus? So to be clear here, I don't believe that Jesus is elevating the standard of the law. I don't believe he's raising the bar at all, but I believe he's getting to what the law intended and at the heart of the law, what was there from the very moment it was given. So to recap... Christ shows us, this is a look back maybe for the last three weeks, how unreconciled anger towards a brother or a sister in Christ, when placed up to the standard of God, is more than just hatred or anger, but it is actually murder of the heart. And he goes on to say adultery is more than just the physical act of sex outside of the covenant of marriage, but it is A lustful thought in and of itself can make one adulterous. And then he gives us some instances where divorce is perhaps permissible, but then he shows us that it is by no means encouraged. And this week we're going to look and see how Jesus gets to the heart of oath-taking. But before we do that, let's go back and we'll read our text again this morning. This is Matthew Chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. It says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white. Or black. Let what you simply let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, at first glance, this text seems a little out of place. Jesus is talking about some pretty heavy things leading up to it, and then he makes a turn towards oath taking. Murder, lust, and divorce all seem as the bigger issues. And breaking an oath, or taking an oath, if we're honest, seems like a smaller issue. Perhaps even a smaller sin. And it can be easy to look at this text and chalk it up as Jesus going on some sort of a rant in his sermon. It's his first one ever, so... I feel like a rant is probably a mistake that a lot of preachers would make in their first sermon ever. We maybe could see Jesus as going off topic. 
Like he looked at the clock, saw that he was maybe moving a little faster than he wanted to go, and decided to fill some time. Or maybe it was, you know, while I'm talking about all this other stuff, while I'm, while I'm getting at this, let's go ahead and talk about this oath-taking thing too. And I don't believe that that's the attitude or the motivation of Jesus in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Not only do I think Jesus is not going on a rant, but I believe that this section is as related to the topic at hand as every other part of the Sermon on the Mount. And what is that topic? Human flourishing, or the blessed life, the good life, and the character and the lifestyle of the citizen of the kingdom of God. This is the way that the citizens of the kingdom of God, kingdom of God are intended to live their lives. But why? Why is oath-taking so big of a deal that Jesus addresses it in his first ever sermon? In verse 33, Jesus says this, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, there was some theological controversy of sorts around this particular command in Scripture. Now, the main question at hand wasn't, what is okay to swear by, but rather the question that they were having these controversies about was, what exactly is a binding oath? Some believe that if you swore by the Lord, then you were bound to do what you said because it was a commitment to God. But if you were to swear by the earth or Jerusalem or the temple, because it wasn't exactly in the Lord's name, you weren't required to follow through. They were, in a way, looking for theological loopholes. And what does Jesus do? In the next three verses, Jesus, in a way, says, sure, when you take an oath that's directly related to the Lord, it's binding. And then he goes on to show how everything in the entire cosmos is directly related to God. Heaven, the throne of God. The earth, his footstool. Jerusalem, yep. Even if you swear by your own head, because of your direct relationship to God as his creation, you have sworn to God. You have made an oath to God. All of everything falls under the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God, so all things sworn by inevitably find their tracings back to God, making all oaths an oath to God. Now, they were more interested in what was binding and what wasn't binding rather than the things that were binding. The people of the day weren't looking to know what oaths to keep to have a righteous understanding or a good sense of moralism. The motivation behind their selectiveness wasn't keeping their word. It was to know what qualifies as binding. So that way, when their deceptive hearts broke these oaths or broke 
what they swore to do. They had a conscience that remained feeling comfortable and remained feeling innocent, despite what their deceptive hearts and their deceptive tendencies led them to do. Mainly breaking oaths. So the issue here that Jesus is getting at isn't necessarily oath-taking. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus himself was both under oath and has made oaths. So what Jesus is doing is continuing to dig at the heart and point out that deception of any kind, of any quality, is a sin and a characteristic that is not permitted and there is no place for in the kingdom of God. Jesus is calling for an end to deception. Now, if the last six to eight months have shown us anything, it is that deception is alive and well. At this point, at the very least, we're reminded of the prevalence of deception every four years. We have television broadcasts where two grown men, uh, two elderly men, get up and they yell at each other and call each other a liar for about an hour. We call it a debate, and then a couple months later, we elect one of them to run our country. Deception is a sin that can find its mentioning as early in the Bible as Genesis chapter 3. Adam, in a way, attempts to deceive God by placing blame on his wife. And when God asks Eve what she has done, what does she say? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And from that moment on, deception has been an innate behavior in every person that's ever lived. We don't need to be taught to be deceptive. Jeremiah 17 says that from the moment of birth, our hearts or our innermost beings are deceptive and wicked. And if you have children, especially kids who can talk, you can realize that you don't have to teach your child how to be deceptive. My three-year-old shows deceit nearly every time he gets in trouble. He's like probably most three-year-olds, and he's ready to run and jump and hit his head on just about anything in the house that he can. He's crazy 100% of the time that he's awake. So we have found that one of the most effective ways in disciplining him has been to put him in timeout. It seems a little like millennial, like the thing to do to just put him in timeout. But it's worked. It's worked because he hates it so much. So he gets his little chair, he faces the wall, and looks at the wall for. It's only. It's even only four minutes. But I think that four minutes of sitting there doing nothing, looking at a wall, is enough to bore even me to death. And so from the moment he sits in his chair. He starts telling us how he is now, he wants to behave. And, and the first couple times he did this, I, if I'm being honest, we were suckers. 
It was really cute. I wasn't expecting it. And so we let him get up because he said he wanted to behave. Only for him to go back and hit his brother again or not pick something up or not listen to what we were saying or, or talk back. He had, he had gone and done exactly what he was in timeout for the first time. So eventually we figured out he doesn't want to behave. He wants to get up. He's trying to deceive us into letting him get up. Deception is so common in our society that unbelievers and secular culture even recognize the issue. We have a whole category of people who have just stopped believing anything. Conspiracy theorists. Everything is a deception. So don't believe anything. You see the earth, you know, this really like spherical looking thing we have pictures of? Yeah, it's flat. Okay, sure. Every, everything is a conspiracy and everybody is out to get them or has some sort of agenda to take over the world. They've just b- stopped believing everything because everything's deceptive. Our culture has no issue recognizing the problem of deception, but the answer that they offer to this deception problem is faulty at best. So what is the answer or the secular answer to the problem of deception? This is a word that I've become sick of this year. Fact-checking. There are people whose actual job is that of a fact-checker. And if you go on Indeed or do a Google search of a fact-checker job, there are tons that offer. And they pay pretty well, actually. But what's the problem with fact-checking? Why is is fact-checking the answer that society offers? Why is this such a, a big thing this year? Because people realize the prevalence of deception. It's estimated that Facebook alone invested between $8 million and $15 million this past year in fact-checking. But why is this faulty? What's the problem with fact-checking? Wouldn't it just be a good thing if we were only exposed to the facts all the time? Well, these fact-checkers are born with the same tendency and natural bend towards deception as everyone else. And what ends up happening is there are facts that are censored and there are facts that are permitted. And it's all depending on the preference of the checker or the organization to determine whether to censor or permit those facts. Truth becomes restricted and deception has a tendency to run rampant and it's all dependent upon the source and the narrative that that source wishes to communicate. It's deception as a cure for deception. As Christians or citizens of a different kingdom, we're called to be countercultural, to live a different life and operate and relate to each other in a different way. Rather than placing our 
agendas in a place of deception, we're called to operate out of truth. How? How, how do we tend to do it that, though? I think if we're honest, we more often operate out of a place of deception and relate out of a place of deception rather than the place of truth that we're called to. But what does that look like? How can, how can we see that we're doing that? Or maybe, maybe what could it look like? What could it look like in your marriage? Maybe it's clearing the search history on your phone before your wife looks at it. Or maybe it's sitting around all day, chilling, and then rushing to get something done really quick before your spouse gets home, so it doesn't look like you just vegged out all day. What about in your parenting? I don't know. Maybe you could ask yourself, who's your kid's real superstar this Christmas? Who's the one they're really looking forward to? Or what about in your missional community? When you and your family are in a difficult season, maybe you and your spouse, you fought all week. Maybe even on the drive to missional community that night, you fought, and someone in the group asks you, how you guys doing? How often is your answer, fine? Or, or maybe this one. I know when me and my wife thought about this one, that when we were talking about it, it was, uh, it, it was kind of a gut shot. Could you really not find a babysitter? How hard did you really look? These deceptions are more than just little white lies. But Jesus, in verse 37 of our text, says that they come from a place of evil. And as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, why is deceit so often our tendency? Why are we so bent towards deception? And as I've been reflecting on deception in my own life, and as an Enneagram 3, whose besetting sin is deceit, I've been grieved over how familiar I am with this particular sin. Even last night, as I was thinking about preaching this sermon this morning, I was reminded of how prevalent this issue is in my own life, and it kept me up, and I had to remind myself of the gospel in the real moment. But it's been helpful as I've reflected on the sin of deception, because it's helped me trace the roots and cause of deception in my life and what I believe causes deception in everyone's life. And when we trace deception back to its roots to find out why we deceive, what we find is an elevation of an identity or an image that we are not called to live out of. When we deceive, we are misplacing our identity somewhere it isn't intended to be. But not only that, the standard that that particular identity requires you to live up to, we can't constantly and consistently do. Why is this the case? 
Well, if your wife knew what you looked at all the time, and you were looking at on your phone, or maybe even in person, what you were looking at all the time, would she still think that you're a good husband? Probably not. And that damages that identity. If your kids found out that you've been lying to them, what would they think of you? Or, better yet, what would other parents think of you? Would you be the the person who couldn't just have a little fun with it? That damages your identity as a parent. Or what if you just admitted that you didn't go to mission night because you didn't feel like it? What happens to your identity as a good person if you admit that you don't care enough about serving your city to try and find a sitter until you find one? Because that's ultimately what we're saying in that moment when we're being deceptive. But we don't want to be perceived like that. The reality is we aren't always good. We aren't always good parents. We aren't always good spouses. We aren't always good employees. We aren't always concerned with, uh, with other people more than we're concerned with ourselves. And each time we don't live up to that standard of that identity, it damages that identity and it begins to kill that identity. And what deception does is simply try and keep that identity alive. But deception does not bring about a vibrant life. It simply sustains its life. Deception works as almost a ventilator of sorts to a dying identity. There's no flourishing in this life. It's simply alive. And this is by no means the life that Jesus calls us to live to when he teaches us about the good life, the flourishing life. And as we've already mentioned this morning, that's the central message to the Sermon on the Mount. Human flourishing, the blessed life. And Jesus says that this life is one that has ended deception. But how does ending deception bring about flourishing? How is the deceitful life an anti-flourishing life? Think about it. Deceit doesn't just stop with one instance. You have portrayed yourself in a certain way or a particular way, and now you must be consistent in that portrayal, or, you, or else you risk damaging that identity. And when you damage it, what happens? It typically calls for more deceit to keep and sustain the life of that identity. Plus, we have a tendency to portray ourselves in different ways. The way that I portray myself to my wife and the way that I portray myself to my boss are totally different. And when these two collide, it can be a daunting task to portray yourself two ways to two people at the same time. But deception demands that you must. And not only that, deception demands that you must recall who you are and who you've portrayed yourself as to everyone that you know. Remember in what ways you've deceived in the past so that way you aren't inconsistent and you have to be ready to change at the drop of a hat. Deception doesn't lead to a flourishing life. Deception leads to an exhausting life. 
The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 says this. This is in verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So the good life, the flourishing life, comes by way of truthfulness. And this, when we really think about it, when we really think about truthfulness 100% of the time, is a radical idea that requires a radical righteousness. To always be truthful. To never portray yourself as something that you aren't. To not have to hide anything. How do we... How do we do that? How do we pursue this life of looking forward to the good days of truthfulness? Well, first, there's no better place to start than by looking to the preacher of this sermon that we're looking at, Jesus. The only person to ever actually live fully the good life. The only person who has this radical righteousness that's required. The personification of truth. He is truth in flesh, you could even say. The Apostle John starts off his gospel with this introduction of Jesus. And it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And I believe that this is one of the best verses in seeing the character, the motivations, and the heart of Jesus. And this is 1 John, or John 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of both grace and he's full of truth. There was no deceit in him. And what did this lead to? This led to him being able to live the good life, to have real relationships with people where he had nothing to hide or nothing to fake. There was no portrayal that he had to put on to anybody of anything that he wasn't because his joy wasn't rooted or determined in his circumstances or what other people thought of him. And how was Jesus able to live a life characterized by grace and truth? Because Jesus knew his identity. And no matter what came his way, this identity was a solid rock of an identity that could not be shaken. What was this identity? If we go back just a couple chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, we can find out. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is when Jesus was being baptized. It says, "When, When Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus knew his identity as the Son of God. And operating out of this identity freed him to live the good life, the truthful life. One without deception. One without portrayal. It didn't matter 
what other people thought of him or called him. It didn't matter if they called him a heretic or a blasphemer or just a teacher or just a prophet or crazy. His identity wasn't drawn towards their opinion of him, but it was not it was anchored in something stronger and more steadfast, and that was his identity as the Son of God. He had a firm grasp on who God said that he was. So how do we end deception? How do we live the good life? We have to be given a new identity, a more secure identity. One that isn't determined on our performance or behavior, because when our performance and behavior are accounted for, we are inevitably led to deceit. Because it's the only thing that can keep a faulty identity alive. But what we need is an identity that has life and vibrant life inside of that identity itself. And that's where John chapter 1, verse 14, that we just talked about, becomes really, really, really good news. Because the heart of Jesus wasn't just caught up or full of truth, but he was full of grace and truth. And this heart full of grace and truth is directed towards deceitful sinners. And it's the heart of grace and truth that drove Jesus to the cross, and it's on the cross that he took on an identity as a deceitful sinner so that deceitful sinners could take on the identity as sons and daughters of God. And it's because of this heart full of grace and truth that now allows God to say what is true of Jesus about us. When Christians trade their identity with Christ and, we ta- and, and He takes on what we deserve and we take on what He deserves, God can now look at you and say, this is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. But there's more good news to that. His pleasure in you and in me, it has nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with our performance. Nothing to do with our behavior. Nothing to do with our consistency or inconsistency because His pleasure is in the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. So when God looks at Bryson, he doesn't see Bryson, the lousy husband, the lazy parent, the poor friend, the deceitful sinner. He sees the finished work of his son, Jesus, and he can look at me and say, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the same is true of you if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus and repented of your sin. It's through the work of Christ that we trade these frail and faulty identities for one that is unwavering and unshakable. This is the good life. The flourishing life. The life that's lived out of a sure and steady identity in Jesus. And what does this good life do? What does this new identity in Christ have to offer. It's a life that doesn't have to deceive. It doesn't have to hide things. But actually, on the flip side of that, it's a life that's free to confess and repent because it's an identity that's rooted in Christ. It's an identity that is enabling us to speak truth and grace and be honest rather than to be deceitful or talk behind backs or gossip. It's a life that has enabled you 
to be who God says you are. And we can do this with a confidence and assurance because we have no need to posture or pretend to be someone that we're not. Because the heart of grace and truth of Jesus Christ has given us an identity that can never be improved upon because Christ finished the perfect work on your behalf and it's already done. There's no improving it, but there's also no taking it away. It's an identity that can't be lost. It can't be compromised. The work of Christ is finished. And through repentance and belief in the gospel, our identities are now sealed forever. And what else does God give us to assure us and encourage us even more as we go on pursuing the good life? He gives us an oath. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 19 says this. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. God has sworn by himself that those who flee to Christ for refuge, they find an anchor for their soul, an identity as a son and daughter that can never be taken from them. And this came from a heart that was full of grace and truth directed towards deceitful sinners. And each week we gather, we get to renew and be reminded of that covenant, of that oath that God made with us through the work of Jesus. Every, every time we come to the Lord's table, we get to take the bread, which represents his body. We get to drink the wine, which is his blood. And we get to partake as deceitful sinners turn sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. God, you are too good to us. You've given us an identity 
through the work of Jesus. And right now, that feels like that is the best news that we could have. Because so often we sin against you and we sin against our brothers and sisters. We deceive, we connive, we lie, we portray and pretend. But even in our deceit, even in our sin, you remain a steadfast anchor for our soul. And so as we come to the table this morning, and we get to eat and drink of the body of Christ that was broken for us, would you, one, renew this covenant, remind us of how extravagant your love is towards us, And would you bring repentance by your Holy Spirit and turn deceitful sinners into a radically righteous, kingdom-seeking, good life-living, human-flourishing son and daughter of God. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.